have to say today and what God's given you. And I, I said, well, you know, I think I could just step up this morning and say, the tomb is empty, he's alive, and drop the mic. Because that's the truth. The tomb is empty, and he's alive. But I do have a little bit more for you than that. Little Philip, born with Down syndrome, attended a third grade Sunday school class with several eight-year-old boys and girls. Typical of that age, the children did not readily accept Philip with his differences, according to an article in Leadership Magazine. But because of a creative teacher, they began to care about Philip and accept him as part of the group, though not fully. The Sunday before Easter, the teacher brought legs pantyhose. Now, some of you ladies are a little bit older. You remember that, them big old legs pantyhose containers like a big old egg? The kind that looked like large eggs. After receiving one, the children were told to go outside on that lovely spring day, find some symbol of new life, and put, in the and put it in the egg-like container. Back in the classroom, they would share their new life symbols, opening the containers one by one in surprise fashion. After running about the church property in wild confusion, the students returned to the classroom and placed containers on the table. Surrounded by the children, the teacher began to open them one by one. After each one, whether a, a flower, a butterfly, or leaf, the class would ooh and ah. Then one was opened, revealing nothing inside. The children exclaimed, that's stupid. That's not fair. Somebody didn't do their assignment. Philip spoke up, that's mine. Philip, you don't do things right, the student said. There's nothing there. I did so do it, Philip insisted. I did do it. It's empty. The tomb is empty. Since silence followed, from then on, Philip became a full member of the class. He died not long afterward from an infection most normal children would have shrugged off. At the funeral, this class of eight-year-olds marched up to the altar, not with flowers, but with their Sunday school teacher, each to lay in on it an empty pantyhose egg. Because there's an empty tomb, we have hope. We have hope. And it's not, we, that, that word's tossed around a lot today, hope. We say things like, hope springs eternal. We say things like, I hope that the doctor's report is going to turn out okay. I hope my children are going to be okay. I hope things are going to turn out okay in my nation. We use it a lot. The dictionary defines hope as an expectation or desire that a certain thing will happen. The question is, what is your hope in? What I'm afraid of is most people today's hope is in just that hope, but not us. We sing about it. We have a living hope. Our hope is not connected to something. It's connected to someone. It's connected to the Son of God who came into this earth, took our sin, went to a cross, was buried, rose again, and there's an empty tomb. That's where our hope is. And so no matter what we face, the trials of life, and hope produces, real hope produces peace. And no matter what we face in life, yes, we'll be worried, yes, we'll be troubled, yes, we'll be concerned, but in the darkest hours of life, there's something that comes around you when you have your faith in a living hope, in the risen and the living Savior that sends a peace into you that nothing else can do. Brother Mike, you experienced that hope. Your whole family has experienced that hope. Mike and Zandy King, Zandy had an aneurysm not too long ago. Didn't think she was going to make it. Broken. But when I went up to see him, there was still a sense of hope and peace there that only comes 
from a relationship with a risen Savior. I hope you know that and I hope you experience that before you leave today if you don't have that. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul wanted the church at Corinth to know. Writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, if you have your Bible or your, or your tablet or your smartphone, if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now this is the end of this letter. Paul wrote this letter to a church that had a lot of problems. It had sexual immorality. Christians were suing each other. They were divided amongst all types of things. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anyone? But at the end of this letter, Paul wanted to know, what is the answer to that? Is it more politics? Is it more division? Is it all this? No, the, the answer to that is the reality of a resurrection and a living Savior. If you'll read with me the uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I'll be reading 1 through 19. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, but which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I would deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. That just simply means some have died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more bluntly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached and he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this Sunday. God, I thank you that it's celebrated across the world. But Lord, we live in the power and the hope of the resurrection every day, every week. And if there's one in here this, th th today that hasn't experienced a living hope to know what it's like to walk through life with you, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would draw them to you, that they would experience, Lord, what is known as the power of the resurrection. I want to cover two things from this passage of Scripture, the reality of the resurrection and the result of the, of the resurrection. The re reality of the resurrection and the result of the resurrection. In, in verses 1 through 11 here, what Paul is doing, he is pointing this church at Corinth to the evidence that the resurrection has indeed occurred. There is lots of evidence that the resurrection has happened. It's been said there's so much evidence for the resurrection that if it were about anything other than a supernatural event, it would not be questioned. 
Many have set out to disprove the resurrection. They've, been, they've set out to disprove Christianity based on the resurrection. Probably the most popular is a man by the name of Lee Strobel. Lee wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Lee was an investigative journalist with the Chicago Tribune. His wife had become saved. He didn't like it, and he was bound and determined to prove the whole thing was a hoax. And what did he set out to prove was a hoax? The resurrection. Because Lee was right. If I can disprove this resurrection, this whole house of cards comes tumbling down. Because the Christian faith is built on the fact that Jesus is alive. And if it can be disproved, then as Paul said, we're dead in our sins. Our loved ones is dead. And he went on later in the chapter to say, we might as well eat, drink, be merry, and live it up because this is all we got if the resurrection could be disproved. But as Lee Strobel started to study and look at the evidence and look in the evidence and look at the evidence, the evidence began to change Lee Strobel. He came to know the Lord as his Savior and went on to write several books. I've got a lot of experience with evidence. There's a lot of former officers in here with evidence. There's two types. There's criminal, there's, in a criminal court, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to have enough evidence to show beyond a reasonable doubt that this happened. And then there's civil, has a preponderance of evidence. I've got to have more evidence than the next person to prove a civil case. I'm here to tell you this morning, there's enough evidence for the resurrection that I believe it's a beyond a reasonable yeah. doubt. And this is what Paul said. This is, this is the things he pointed to to let that church at Corinth know that Christ is indeed risen. In verses 3 and 4 of the passage, he says this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The first evidence is it is written down in the Scriptures. There is, there is so many passages in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled by Christ, many which deal with His crucifixion and His resurrection. There are some 574 verses throughout the Old Testament that deal with Christ. 300 prophecies Christ fulfilled on his earthly ministry. And many of those dealt with his crucifixion and his resurrection. There are eight references in different psalms to some aspect of the crucifixion and the resurrection. These things were written some hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before he even came to the earth. Read Psalm 22 today when you go home. Look at the, look at the references just to the crucifixion out of that psalm. As a matter of fact, how many of you are familiar? It's been all over the news, so if you've not watched any news, you would have to watch none not to know about this. But how, how many of you have seen what's going on with this uh, chat AI stuff, the artificial intelligence? That stuff is scary. That stuff's got end-time implications. I don't know what it is, but it looks like they're programming these machines that are going to be able to take over humans. I don't know. But you can go into these chat AIs and you can say, type me a paper on George Washington. And that thing will start typing. And it'll type you a paper on George Washington and it'll be pretty accurate. And, and, and professors are struggling with how do we know if, the, if this was researched by the student or was it done by a machine? And so there's a lot of things going on with that. Nice having young people live with you for a while, but of course I don't have that, but Colin does. And he, he showed me, he, he typed into chat AI, he said, What's, what's the, one of the best evidences for Christianity? You know what it said? Fulfilled prophecy. And it started typing. And it told all of these prophecies 
that Jesus had fulfilled that point to the fact that he was a real person and he arose. We have a historian. I mentioned George Washington. How do we know that George Washington is alive? Did you see him? I hadn't seen him. But historians have wrote about him. That's how we know he's alive. And in Jesus' day, there were historians. This book is the breath of God. It's inspired. It's everything you need for life and godliness. But it's also a history book. Much of what's written in it was recorded in other places as well. Probably the most famous historian of Jesus' day was a man by the name of Flavius Josephus. And Josephus said this about Jesus in his day. He said, at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. And his conduct was good. And he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported he had been appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had recounted wonders. This is just a historian. That's why he uses words like perhaps. We know he was the Messiah. The scriptures point to a resurrection. And then there's an empty tomb. I said in the opening, the tomb is empty. I've been to it. Some of you have been to it. There's no body in that tomb. And, and people, wise people, people who just want to close their eyes and discredit the resurrection, they'll say, well, they, they, they point to something called a swoon theory. He wasn't really dead. He was just half dead, and he laid in a tomb, and then he got up. It takes more, it takes more faith to believe that than he resurrected. Because you have to understand, when he's in there, there was a big stone in front of that tomb. They had Roman guards, and it wasn't just one guard, it was several guards. And it, it, it's foolish to think that he would get up and dust himself off, roll that great big stone back and say, hey guys, how you doing? I'm out of here, and walk away. That would have never happened. They would have took him into custody right then. That tomb is empty. Jesus' body has never been recovered. There's, not an, there's never been an ossuary, that's what they buried people in back then, that says, here lies Jesus of Nazareth. Lots of archaeological digs going on there all the time. They've never found that body. They won't find that body. Because just as he said he would, he rose, he spent some time, and then he ascended to heaven. And if he did that, he's coming back. And you can count on it. Because that tomb is empty. And lastly is the eyewitness accounts. Verses 5 through 8. Paul said... And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And he was seen, and then he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some had fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me, also as one born out of due time. Over five hundred people saw him. It's been recorded. And do you know how they try to discredit that? These people were hallucinating. Boy, that must have been some good drugs. 500 people, over 500 people having a hallucination about the same thing? No. He was alive. They talked to him. They walked with him. They ate with him. It was recorded in the scriptures. All these things were recorded in the scriptures. The eyewitness accounts. Here's the thing. 
For those out there who still decide to deny the resurrection, it's not because they can't believe. It's because they won't believe. It's that simple. Because there's so much evidence that it happened. But that is the reality of the resurrection. How about the result of the resurrection? See, here's the thing. I can, I can lay out a case, and Paul did. Like, a, like an attorney laying out a case. I can lay it out. I can say, hey, it's been written about. It's been fulfilled. The tomb is empty. Let's get all these people up and see. They wrote it down. They saw him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They saw him ascend to heaven. They've written it down, written it down. I can tell you all that, and you can believe that in your head, but until it gets to your heart, it's just evidence in your head. It, so what is the reality of the resurrection? Paul, writing in verse 9, said this, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. The reality of the resurrection is change lives. The resurrected Savior is still changing lives. Prior to encountering a resurrected Savior, Paul was a brutal man. He was bound and determined to stop Christianity. He did not like it. He was the one that when they were stoning Stephen, the first martyr, Paul stood there and let them hang their coats on his arms so they could stone him. And then he went out and started dragging Christians out of their homes and taking them before the ruling council to have them murdered. But then one day he was on a road to Syria. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ with the resurrected Savior, and it changed his life. He became a great apostle for the Lord. He's the one who came to minister to people like me, the Gentile, to make sure we knew the good news. Changed lives. Every single one of the disciples except John at the, resur at, at the crucifixion, do you know what they did? They ran like a bunch of scared sissies. And they hid. And thank goodness for the women. You know, the women, when we, we're running men, they're running there, staying there. They were afraid. They figured, we're next. They crucified him. We're next. But every single one of those disciples would die for their faith, except for John. Many of them would be crucified. Many of them would be, some of them would be stoned. Some of them would be beaten to death. Some of them would be thrown off of a cliff. Do you think they would do that for a hoax? Absolutely not. And there's people today who have, in this place here, there's testimony after testimony of changed lives. People who live different. People who live different. He changed my life. He gave me a, a peace that I was looking for. As a young boy, I was saved as a young boy. But then things were creeping into my life. I didn't have the peace that I knew God wanted for me. That living hope. I wanted to experience every day, not just on Easter. And as I come to know Him and know Him better and get to know Him better and stay in His Word and stay close to Him and stay with His people, it changes me inside, from the inside out. We had a young man here just a few weeks ago by the name of R.J. We had about 250 middle schoolers in this church. And he sat up here and he gave a testimony of how before 18 he had 11 felonies. And somebody led him to Christ. And now he travels the world preaching the gospel. He had an encounter with the resurrected Lord. He has a living hope. His life is better than it was. He will make your life better than it was. There's lots of people that you could highlight around the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's the men on the cross that were crucified with Jesus. 
There are the disciples. There's the centurion that said, surely this man was the son of God. But this morning, just for a few minutes, I want to talk about somebody who really needed to experience that living hope who was with Jesus, and it was Peter. Because I identify a lot with Peter in some ways. Peter popped off at the mouth, really, before he really, his brains were loaded. He was a man's man. He was one of Jesus' inner circle. But as, as time was getting close for Jesus to be crucified, he began to tell his disciples, he said, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to be tried and crucified. And I'm going to bury him and I'm going to rise on the third day. Peter wouldn't hear that. No way. That's not going to happen, Lord. To the point that Jesus had to look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. You have the things of man in mind, not the things of God. And then Peter said, well, I'm going to be with you. And he said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, that's not going to happen. These flunkies may, but I'm not. And then when they come to arrest Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter's the one who takes out his sword and strikes the dude's ear off. I think at that point, Peter was ready to die with the Lord. I do. But Jesus said, put your sword away. Heals the man's ear. Jesus is taken into custody, taken to the high priest to be tried. The Bible says Peter is standing out warming himself by the fire. And the, dis, the, the, the different gospels, all the gospels account the resurrection, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. I'll give it from a little different vantage point. Not uncommon when, when witnesses write things down. And there's three things I have on my notes about Peter. It's and Peter, but Peter, then Peter. First, I want to talk about and Peter. The Gospel of Mark says that Peter was there. All these give this account in different ways. But Peter's warming himself by the fire, and this little girl goes, hey, you're one of his disciples. You're with him. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Then another little girl, they say, hey, hey, you are with him. And the Bible says he says with an oath, I don't even know the man. And then more gather around and say, you were with him. You talk like him. We know you're with him. And the Bible says, even with a curse word, he says, I don't know him. And then about that time, Jesus walks by, makes eye contact with Peter, I'm sure, and that rooster crows. The Bible says Peter runs out and he does what I would have done. He wept bitterly. He had failed. And that was the last thing Peter would do on this earth. He wouldn't get another chance on this earth. He didn't think. That won't the end of the story. And I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know where you feel like a failure. No doubt Peter felt like a failure. He did the very thing the Lord told him we'd do. He, he, he swore he wouldn't do it. And he did it. And so during that time when Jesus is being crucified and dead and buried, no doubt Peter had an immense sense of hopelessness. It's over. But it won't over. He needed to experience living hope. And maybe that's your story this morning. We all have things we wish we had done different. But in Mark, the ladies go to the tomb. And they walk in. And there's an angel in there. And the, and the body's not there. And the angel says to the ladies, go tell my disciples that I'm alive. And Peter. And Peter. Everybody knew that Peter was his disciple. I mean, he was one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Why, why single him out? Why, why say, make sure Peter knows? 
There's so many stories that tell us about the heart of our God. Jesus said, I came to show you the Father. He came to show us what our God is like. And there, this story is one of the best for me. Because I'm convinced that when that resurrection power came into the body of Jesus and it began to breathe, the first thing on his mind was Peter. I think he took off his grave clothes. I think he looked over at the angel and he said, some ladies are going to come to the tomb. And when they come in here, you make sure to tell them that I'm alive. Go tell my disciples I'm alive. And make sure they tell Peter. Make sure they tell Peter. There's no doubt that Jesus knew where Peter was. He knew the disappointment. He knew he felt like a failure. But, he, but Jesus was going to restore him. You've never gotten too far away from a God that loves you, that you can't come back. If you come and put your trust in him, he will restore you. You can't be bad enough. You can't be good enough. You just have to come and recognize who he is, but recognize who you are. And then there's but Peter. The Gospel of Luke says that the ladies went to the tomb. It was empty. They run. When the ladies come back to the disciples, and they say, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Well, you know what they start doing? Bickering. Oh, they, they're crazy. The tombs, there ain't no way the tomb's empty. You want me talking about the tomb's empty? But the Bible says, but Peter, he jumped up and took off running. He wasn't going to stand there and bicker over things. Peter needed to experience a risen Savior. He jumped up and he took off running. And in the, the Gospel of John, it says that not only did Peter run, but John ran. Well, John must have been a faster runner because the Bible says that John beat Peter to the tomb. But he stops. He stops to look in. But it says, then Peter went on in. Let me tell you something. Peter needed to experience living hope. He had failed. The last thing he had done is failed. The Lord was going to restore him. They can sit there and bicker that this tomb is empty or it's not empty. People bicker over all kinds of things today. But when you need a living hope, when you need to experience the Savior, you will run, run to him, and he will bring you out of your tomb. Whatever that tomb is. It could be a tomb of fear, doubt. Maybe you're facing a sickness. Maybe there's things going on in your life. I don't know. But I can tell you this, the same God that restored Peter, that loved Peter, he will restore you and he loves you. I'm going to ask the uh, Pastor Don and the praise team, if they will, to, to come up. I open by saying that hope, hope's a big deal in our world today. What is your hope in? What is your hope in? Sadly, I got a, uh, an email. It was a group that I'm connected to. And I got an email sometime back. And it, it was concerning the, um, the impending arrest of President Trump and how people would react to that. And it said, the optics alone will be difficult for many, even call it causing a feeling of intense hopelessness. And I sat back in my, I was in my office when I read that, and I sat back and I read that, and I said, sadly, that's true. Because if your hope is in your government, if it's in your money, if it's in your youth, if it's in your religion, it's going to leave you hopeless. It's going to lead to hopelessness. But if your hope this morning is in a risen Savior, there's always hope. There's always hope because He's alive. And there's a song that says, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. I don't know what I'm going to face tomorrow. I don't know what our nation's going to face. There's a lot of things going on out there you know. You're, you're dealing with it. You're living out there. You're working out there. But I'm going to tell you, because he lives, you can face it.
I can face tomorrow. Pastor Don's going to sing that song. This altar is open. We believe in closing our service with an altar. Maybe it'd be a great time with families here. Maybe families, you want to come down and just stand at the altar.